This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. It's my pleasure to introduce my uh, friend and, and colleague, Dr. Tommy Doolin, who will be our speaker this evening. Um, Dr. Doolin attended uh, Dartmouth uh, for undergrad and then Yale uh, for medical school and then came out to the West Coast to UCSF for his medicine residency, uh, which is when I first met him. So I was a junior faculty member. Um, Tommy had not yet um, uh, joined uh, uh, the cardiology fellowship, so was still a medicine resident, and published what became a very famous and influential paper in one of the very top cardiology journals that, frankly, as faculty, we, we hope to get our papers uh, in. Uh, that really um, positively affected the way and, 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 and informed the way we conduct common implantable cardioverter defibrillator uh, placement procedures that he will review today. Uh, today. He then uh, came to stayed at UCSF for his cardiology fellowship training. I had the uh, privilege of working with him uh, during his dedicated research year where he continued to publish very high impact research related to atrial fibrillation uh, and the epidemiology of atrial fibrillation, some of the top cited manuscripts uh, in that um, uh, arena. He stayed at UCSF for his cardiac electrophysiology fellowship, and then we lost him to uh, Oregon Health Sciences University, where he served on the faculty for several years until we were able to lure him back uh, to join uh, the faculty, where he's now a colleague in the uh, section of cardiac electrophysiology at UCSF. So with that, I uh, will turn it over to Dr. Doolin. Well, thank you uh, for the kind introduction, Greg. Uh, I amended the, the title of this talk slightly to implantable devices that we use to diagnose and treat cardiac rhythm disorders. So we're going to talk about a couple other things besides uh, just pacemakers and defibrillators, uh, but I think all sort of very relevant um, device technologies, and some of which are marketed directly to patients, and uh, many in the audience may have uh, heard something about these devices. So I have no relevant disclosures. And by way of overview, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to focus on four different uh, technologies that we as cardiac electrophysiologists use to uh, diagnose and treat cardiac So the first is the implantable loop recorder, often abbreviated ILR. Uh, we'll then talk about cardiac pacemakers. And then we'll, we'll discuss implantable cardioverter defibrillators, abbreviated ICD. And then we'll close out with a discussion on left atrial appendage occlusion devices. These are uh, devices used to uh, mitigate against the risk of stroke in atrial fibrillation, uh, the watchman, the two devices that are currently using. You may have uh, heard of those in the media. So let's first talk about implantable loop recorders. So, this is a very common scenario that we encounter in electrophysiology clinics. So a 58-year-old woman is referred to see us to evaluate recurrent loss of consciousness episodes. So she's passing out, she's regaining consciousness, and the, the question is, are these episodes due to a cardiac arrhythmia? And that's why she's sent to see us. And when we talk to her, we find out that she's having you know, episodes, episodes are fairly infrequent, maybe every six months to a year. And 
we get a sense that this may be a, a fairly benign cause of passing out called vasovagal syncope, but there maybe are some uh, features of the syncope that give us a bit of pause. So we want to work this up a little bit further uh, to make sure that there's not a more serious or perhaps life-threatening uh, arrhythmia or arrhythmogenic cause of her loss of consciousness episodes. Loss of consciousness episodes. So we'll start off in clinic by uh, getting an ECG, and in this case, the ECG is normal. We'll often uh, get an echocardiogram, so that's where we use saves to look at the heart muscle, and that gives us an understanding of if there's any structural heart disease. Is there is there a valve? Is the heart muscle weakened? But in this case, it's completely normal. And then we'll typically prescribe some sort of ambulatory monitor. Most of our ambulatory monitors um, are between 14 and 30 days. This is an example of one called the Zio patch. So it's a it's a basically a big sticker that's placed on the chest. Patient wear for 14 days and collects 14 days worth of uh, single lead ECG data. Now, of course, this patient's having very rare episodes of loss of consciousness, and she does not have one in the 14 days that the monitor. And so we really have basically a benign or an unremarkable workup at this point. And the the real question is, what is her heart rhythm when she's having these episodes of syncope? And the implantable loop recorder is a, is a really nice technology that we have available to us that allows us to monitor patients on a more longitudinal basis to uh, hopefully capture one of these very rare events and to correlate her symptoms with her heart rhythm and to determine, is this due to a heart rhythm abnormality? So, these are what implantable loop recorders look like. These are but three of the many devices that are on the market. Um, you can see there, uh, well, you can't really see, but I'll show you that this is the relative size of a quarter. So these devices are, are pretty small. They're implanted under the skin in the left chest. They, while they look slightly different, um, they have uh, a battery in them and they have an electrical bipole. So they have, they have two electrodes in them that, and they're measuring the electrical activity between those two electrodes to get electrical signature of the heart, just like an ECG lead does. But this is a single lead ECG planted uh, in the chest. So the implantation procedure for these devices is, is pretty simple and straightforward. Here at UCSF, we bring patients into our pre-procedure holding area where we implant these devices. Um, but in my old job, we would actually do them in clinic. So it's a, it's a really quick, straightforward procedure. We use some numbing medication over the skin in the left chest. And then depending on which manufacturer, we use a, uh, a device that looks like this on the left. This is a, um, a small tool that we use to make a, a small incision in the skin in the chest. It's incisions under, under a centimeter. And then this tool is what's actually used to implant the loop recorder. And Effectively, the loop recorder is injected into the under the skin. Um, this this tool allows us to create a tract, and then you know we, it's really just a, a injection motion to push the device under the skin. So it sits in the subcutaneous fat. It sits above the pectoralis muscle. It's not actually in the chest, but it's in the skin over the chest. And on the left here is our cartoon, sort of showing. What this looks like. So the device, you know, we try to situate it where it's going to be right over uh, the heart and is able to record uh, heart signals with high fidelity. And then once the device is put in, once we confirm that the sensing 
is reasonable. We, we close the incision. Often we just close it with some kind of medical grade super glue that, that brings the skin together. Other times we'll put in a stitch or two just to bring the tissue together. But, you know, once the, once the glue falls off um, in a few days, patients can get the site wet. And there's really no real activity restrictions. Most of the pain is pretty well managed, um, Tylenol or, or, or other sort of over-the-counter uh, analgesic. So it's a, it's a pretty uh, straightforward implant procedure. This is sort of what, uh, or this is an example of what the skin looks like. So in many patients, the scar is, is really tiny. Um, and in fact, when we sometimes take these devices out, it's difficult to figure out where the device is and uh, where the incision was that initially uh, was used to put it in. And, and men with a lot of chest hair, you, you certainly won't see. This is an example of the tracing that we get from the device. So this is an example of why I included it is a really good tracing. So this tracing is to see both what's happening in the atrium and in the ventricle of the heart. So we see this sort of low amplitude, small signal here. This is the P wave. This is the atrial uh, electrical depolarization. And that's followed by a much larger amplitude, much higher frequency uh, signal. This is called the QS complex. This is what happens when the ventricles are contracting. And you see in this patient, they're in a normal rhythm. This is sinus rhythm. And so the atrium, the top chambers are contracting, followed by contraction of the bottom chamber. So this is a nice clean signal. And the device down here at the bottom is annotating uh, what it's seeing. So it's it's saying it's it's ventricular sense event. So it's seeing all of these QRS complexes. It is appropriately uh, detecting the patient's heart rhythm. Now the loop recorder is called a loop recorder because it's not recording every heartbeat the patient has. What it's doing is it's sort of recording a moving window of data. So as it's acquiring new data, it's throwing out old data from maybe five or 10 minutes before, such that if the patient either triggers the monitor by placing it, or if there is an event that meets certain parameters, the device sort of timestamps that and holds on to that window, maybe five or 10 minutes worth of data, depending on the manufacturer, and stores that in memory. But it's a, as you saw, it's a small device. It has limited memory, limited battery capacity, and so it's really only storing permanent uh, uh, interesting data that someone may want to look at uh, to establish a symptom relationship. So you cannot interrogate the device or talk to the loop recorder and say, what was this patient's heart rhythm on you know, January 3rd, 2021? That information is long gone unless the patient had to trigger the event at that time or there was of an event of interest that the device recorded. And you can see here sort of how these devices are set up. So again, they're not recording everything. They're just holding on to really uh, sort of electrophysiologically interesting pieces of data. So patient has a fast heart rate that's over per minute for over 16 beats. It will, it will hold on to that data. If there's a long pause, more than three seconds, if they're bradycardic for less than 30 beats per minute, for more than four beats. So these are the parameters that it holds on to, and these are... Um, to some degree, programmable in terms of uh, how the data. It also uh, has algorithms that it uses atrial fibrillation, uh, and it will record those episodes at the ten minutes. But it also will give us an overall atrial fibrillation, an estimated.
So why do we implant a loop recorder? Well, probably the most uh, common reason that we implant a loop recorder actually is for atrial fibrillation. Now, unfortunately, um, patients come into the hospital with, with strokes and the reason or the etiology underlying cause of the stroke is uh, in some cases, uh, in a sizable number of cases, not entirely known. We call that cryptogenic stroke. So the neurologists do a very thorough workup. They look to see, is there you know, plaque in the, in, the, in the brain or in the carotid arteries? Is there other reasons why this patient may have had a stroke? And if despite a pretty thorough workup, no underlying etiology is uh, discerned, then that's labeled cryptogenic stroke. And one of the causes of cryptogenic stroke is atrial fibrillation. And as Dr. Marcus talked to us a few weeks ago, atrial fibrillation can be this rhythm that comes and goes. And so identifying atrial fibrillation in a patient who's had a cryptogenic stroke is really important because that's going to change how we treat that arrhythmia. That is going to be prescribed an anticoagulant medication because they've already had a stroke and we certainly want to prevent further stroke episodes. So uh, we frequently put these devices in um, when we are sent patients from the neurologist who say, look, we've done some monitoring, a couple weeks of monitoring, we haven't seen any atrial fibrillation, but don't know why this patient had a stroke and we like more longitudinal data to understand uh, if this patient's having atrial fibrillation. That's one of the reasons why uh, we place uh, a loop report. So um, the second reason, uh, or one of the other reasons why we may implant a recorder is for patients who have limitations or tachycardia. And, you know, just like our patient who's passing out every six to 12 months, if the patient's having sustained palpitations that occur once per year, that can be pretty hard to catch on a monitor. And so we sometimes implant loop recorders uh, for that reason as well. Now I'll tell you, we're doing that less and less these days in part because of the ambulatory um, or, or phone-based ECG monitors that patients can have. So if they're having sustained tachycardia and they have one of these devices that interfaces with their phone, so a non-implantable device, but that one that they're carrying around them, that can be used to capture these tachycardia episodes as well. So sometimes for, you know, for instance, a very motivated patient who always has their phone with them and can always carry one of these uh, that can be a way uh, to capture these rare populations with tachycardia episodes that um, uh, may not necessitate implanting a loop recorder. And then finally, in like the patient we presented or discussed, patients who are having rare syncope with concern for an arrhythmogenic cause will implant a loop recorder. These phone-based monitors are not a good solution in that scenario, of course, because the patient's passing out and they're not going to be able to uh, you know, hold on to an ambulatory or a phone-based uh, ECG monitor. So a couple other uh, considerations with these devices. So once the device is implanted, we do all of our monitoring remotely, as long as the patient's sort of able to keep up with that. Patients go home with a bedside monitor and typically want it within, um, you know, about six feet or so uh, of the patient while they're sleeping. And the, the monitor connects to the implantable loop recorder uh, at nighttime and looks for episodes and uploads them and notices them. And then once a month, the monitor uploads data to our server uh, uh, just so we can keep an eye on things and see if there's any um, events that are noted. The battery longevity of these loop recorders is typically in the two to three year range. And at the end of battery life, patients can either choose to have it removed or we can actually leave it in place. And some patients are not bothered by it. They don't notice it. They sort of forget it's there. 
uh, it's perfectly fine to leave it in place. Although um, I'll say it seems like the majority of patients uh, do elect to have it removed uh, at the end of battery life. And then finally, I'll mention false positive results uh, not only are possible, but are, are fairly frequently seen. And we, we um, it's not uncommon for us to uh, get a notification that a patient's had a rhythm abnormality on their loop recorder. And I think it's just really important. It really highlights how, despite sort of all this technology that we use, uh, the importance of, uh, you know, reviewing the primary data and sort of understanding how to interpret the ECGs uh, still remains uh, critical in our care for patients with these devices. So this is an example of a false positive. This is a patient an alarm for a pause in their heart rate. And you see at the end of the tracing that, you know, there's a really nice quality tracing here. The device is marking these episodes as V-Sense, so the patient's in a completely normal heart rhythm. Uh, but you see here in the preceding 10 to 15 seconds that the device is missing all these QRS complexes. It does see this one right here. It says V-Sense, but then it goes on and doesn't sense any of these. And the QRS is of lower amplitude, and maybe there's a change in uh, the patient's uh, position where the amplitude gets lower. But this patient has a completely normal heart rhythm throughout this tracing. There's a little bit of noise or artifact right here, but completely normal heart rhythm throughout this tracing. Uh, and the device is, is inappropriately marking this as a pause. This is another example uh, of both a pause and an inappropriately sensed tachycardic episode. So this patient is in sinus tachycardia. Um, I, I think this is, if I recall, this is a patient who is uh, doing sit-ups. And so you see that there's a, you know, they're in a fast heart rhythm at, um, you know, roughly 140, 150 beats per minute, sinus tachycardia. And then due to changes in the, in, the, in the postural tone, the QRS complexes get much smaller. The device detects a pause here, although you can see that the heart rhythm remains totally normal. Uh, and then there's artifact here, maybe from myopotentials, so the underlying pectoralis muscle that it picks up, maybe uh, external interference, but it's marking all this very rapid uh, deflections as tachycardia. So this was flagged as a tachycardic episode and brought to our attention, but this is, um, again, a very normal heart rhythm. So implantable loop recorders can be a very uh, valuable tool to diagnose uh, rare arrhythmogenic events in patients who are either they have a high concern for atrial fibrillation, or maybe they're having episodes of passing out or tachycardic episodes that we want to uh, evaluate and establish a symptom rhythm correlation. Although we always have to um, uh, be careful to, uh, review the primary data before making the diagnosis. So let's move on to uh, cardiac pacemakers. So uh, Dr. Marcus talked to us a few weeks ago about the conduction system of the heart. So the heart is a mechanical pump, uh, but that pump is regulated by an electrical system. And the electrical system of the heart is, at least in a normal heart rhythm, is uh, uh, led by the sinus node. So the sinus node is the biologic pacemaker of the heart. And electrical activity emanates from the sinus node, travels through the atrium, and then uh, uh, crosses the AV groove through the AV node. And it's the AV node that allows electrical activity to get to the Hisperkinji system in the left and the right uh, bundles, which allow the left and the right ventricle to electrically depolarize and to mechanically track. So Conduction system abnormalities, broadly speaking, can occur in one of two areas. So they can occur within the sinus node. That's called sinus node dysfunction. 
And that can manifest in a variety of ways. Patients can pass out because they're having pauses in their heart rate because of uh, intermittent sinus node uh, dysfunction or, or, or intermittent lack of impulse from the sinus node. Some patients just have fatigue from, from inappropriate low heart rates. And some patients may experience exercise intolerance because the sinus node maybe works okay at rest, but as they get up and exercise, the sinus node does not um, sufficiently augment to supply their, their brain and their muscles with uh, more, uh, more blood. And so sinus node dysfunction is rarely, if ever, life-threatening. Now, of course, if a patient's you know, high up on a ladder or, you know, rock climbing and they have a sinus pause and they pass out. Of course, that can be life-threatening, but uh, there is, it's pretty rare and or depending on who you talk to, it doesn't happen where the sinus node stops and that results in uh, complete asystole of the heart. And that's because the heart is sort of designed, if you will, to have subsidiary pacemaker cells. So if the sinus node fails, Typically, cells within the AV node will take over, and the patient will have a heart rhythm that's being generated in the AV node. If the cells in the AV node fail, uh, hopefully there will be cells lower down in the Hisprakinji system that can take over, and uh, perhaps cells even in the ventricular myocardium that can take over and save life and, and maintain perfusion and, and allow the patient to live, at least until they can reach medical care. The issue, though, is that as the escape rhythm uh, gets lower and lower down in the heart, it becomes less reliable. And so uh, when there are problems in the AV node, uh, so you have now the sinus nodes working fine, but electrical activity is not getting from the atrium to the ventricles, uh, we, we really have to think about where in the AV node the block is occurring. If the block is occurring pretty high up in the AV node, um, in many cases, as long as the patient is not symptomatic, we don't necessarily need to do anything. But if the block is occurring lower down, maybe in the Hisprakinji system, we'll sometimes implant or we'll often implant a pacemaker in those patients, regardless of whether they're having symptoms. So for sinus node dysfunction, we're really worried about symptoms, and that's when we consider putting in a, in a pacemaker. And for AV node dysfunction, it really matters where in the AV node uh, the block is occurring. If it's causing symptoms within the AV node, it doesn't matter where the block is, uh, we would put in a pacemaker. Uh, but if the block is occurring lower down in the AV node, and that's picked up on a monitor or other testing, uh, we will put in a pacemaker, not necessarily because the patient's having but because we are concerned that they will go on to develop AV block, and that AV block could be a threat to their life. So, we put in pacemakers to treat bradycardia. We put pacemakers to treat slow heart rate. So pacemakers kind of, there are some rare exceptions, but pacemakers do not treat fast heart rhythms. They instead prevent the heart from going too slow. So they provide a sort of basement rate, if you will, uh, that below which the pacemaker will, will start pacing the heart and it will not allow the heart rate to go any slower. So, this is an example of bradycardia or a slow heart rate dysfunction. This is a, a device, or this was a rhythm abnormality picked up on a loop recorder. So you see that the patient starts off with a heart rate of about 60 beats per minute, and then the heart rate slowly uh, starts to slow down. Uh, we see the atrial activity here. This is very kind of low amplitude signal and followed by this more uh, higher amplitude, higher frequency QRS complex. 
And we see that it's really this, the sinus node that's slowing down. And this patient's having pauses up to about three seconds. This patient had a loop recorder put in because she was having episodes of passing out. And then she had this recording done uh, where she said she felt lightheaded, like she might faint or didn't. And so we thought that the most likely etiology of her prior passing out was similar sinus node dysfunction, and she got uh, a permanent pacemaker to treat that. This is a more dramatic example. So this is a, a patient um, that had a loop recorder, again, implanted due to rare episodes of syncope. And uh, she was up late one night and uh, suddenly felt lightheaded and, and passed out and fell down to the floor. Uh, and again, you see that uh, she's in a normal sinus rhythm here. And the sinus rate starts to slow, and then it completely stops. And she actually goes 24 seconds uh, with no heartbeat. And it almost looks like the monitor comes off, but you see that the heart rhythm resumes, and then the sinus node slowly wakes up and starts beating again. Most of us can tolerate somewhere in the neighborhood of a four to six-second pause, but once you get much beyond that, um, almost anyone will pass out because of lack of blood flow to the brain. So these are two examples of sinus node disease. This is uh, an example of disease that's occurring within the node. So this is, again, a patient with an implantable loop recorder uh, who's having episodes of passing out. And she's going along here in a sinus rhythm, really good fidelity tracings here. And then the, the top chamber electricity, the P wave, this lower amplitude signal is conducting one-to-one -one down to the bottom chamber. But then we notice here that every other beat is blocking. So this beat from the sinus node conducts through the AV node to the ventricle. This beat does not. This beat conducts to the sinus node or through the AV node to the ventricle. This beat does not. This beat blocks. And then she goes into this rhythm where the sinus node continues to fire, but it's not getting through the AV node. It's not getting to the bottom chambers of the heart. And the patient is then asystolic. So this is disease within the AV node. And so in all of these scenarios, when the patient is symptomatic from their bradycardia and we can't identify a reversible cause, so, you know, for instance, they're not on a medication to slow down their heart rate, uh, then that's when we'll uh, recommend putting in a pacemaker you know, to prevent symptoms, to prevent them uh, from uh, hopefully from passing out in the future. So these are, this is an example of what a pacemaker looks like. So a pacing system is comprised of a generator, and these are four different examples of pacemaker generators uh, and a pacemaker lead. So the lead is actually what goes in through the vein is in, in, is into the heart. And then the lead is then connected to the generator. And it's um, you can see down here in the bottom left, there's a pin at the end of the lead. And that pin is placed in this header. And there's a screw within here that we tighten down. And that attaches the lead to the actual pacemaker generator. These pacemaker generators have a lot of uh, circuitry in them. There's a, there's a processor in there. There's a battery in there. Uh, this clear top part called the header, there is a, an antenna. This antenna is what allows us to communicate with the pacemaker generator through the skin. So once the device is implanted, it's completely under the skin, and we're able to talk to the device using uh, what we call an interrogator. So uh, that allows us to uh, sort of see what the device is seeing. It allows us to make programming changes to the device. It allows us to make measurements of the leads sure the device is functioning appropriately. All these devices also contain uh, some uh, technology that allows the device to sense if the patient is moving. 
usually that technology is an accelerometer. Some devices also have minute ventilation sensors where they can sense how fast the patient is breathing. But what the devices do is sense if the patient is exercising. Because if the patient is exercising, the patient's likely to need a higher heart rate. And if you recall, we're implanting these devices usually in patients or, or frequently in patients who have problems with uh, cardiac um, uh, impulse conduction or with generation of that impulse. And so if the sinus node is sick, it may not increase the heart rate during exercise. And so the pacemaker is there to sense that the patient is moving, that they're exercising, and the pacemaker will increase the heart rate uh, for the individual. And that's also um, a very programmable feature of this device and something that we often have to uh, uh, sort of make some programming changes to to dial it in correctly for, for an individual patient. All right, so how do we put these devices in? We typically implant pacemakers on the left chest. And the reason we implant them on the left chest is that the sort of curves to get to the heart are more gradual and most of our tools are developed to get to the heart from the left side. I'll also say, we'll talk about this in a minute, but for defibrillator implantation, we really prefer to have the defibrillator on the left side because the, the defibrillator generator is a part of the circuit that we use to shock the heart. And of course, the heart is on the left side of the chest. And so we want everything on the left side to maximize energy delivery to the heart. But in general, we implant pacemakers on the left side, although if there are reasons to do so on the, on the right side, for instance, the patient has occlusion of the veins on the left or has had a prior infected pacemaker on the left, then we certainly can implant the device uh, on the left side. So uh, we implant the device by getting access to the left axillary artery, or excuse me, left axillary vein. And that vein uh, leads down to the superior vena cava, then to the right atrium, and allows us to deliver uh, these leads to the heart. Once the leads are in the and in the heart, we then make a pocket. So Typically, that pocket is made between the pectoralis muscle and uh, the skin, although we sometimes can, will choose to put the device under the pectoralis muscle, for instance, in a patient who's very, very thin and has very little subcutaneous fat. But mostly, most of the time, we place the device uh, between the pectoralis muscle and the skin, and a pocket is, is made, and the, the leads are connected to the generator. The generator is placed into the pocket, and then the skin is closed uh, over top. So this is what a chest x-ray looks like after device implantation. So to orient you, the, this is the patient's left side over here, and this is the generator on the left side. You see that there are two leads attached to the generator, and these leads come uh, through the axillary vein to the superior vena cava, and then there's a lead in the right atrium, and then a second lead uh, in the right ventricle. And that, this is sort of just to show you these are where the leads are, so in the right atrium uh, and the right uh, ventricle. So this, is a, this is what we call a dual chamber pacemaker because there's a lead in both the upper and the lower chambers. We will sometimes implant single chamber pacemakers, so a lead just in the right ventricle typically of the heart. For instance, in a patient with atrial fibrillation that doesn't need any pacing in the, in the atrium because they're always fibrillating. These leads attach to, there's, there's sort of two mechanisms by which we attach these leads to the heart muscle. The most common one is on the, the, the top here. So this is an active fixation lead. You see that the lead has a little sort of helix at the tip. And this helix is 
uh, extendable and retractable. And it's done by turning the pin on the other end of the lead, so outside the body when we're implanting the device. So we, we put this lead right up against the heart tissue and there are certain um, parameters that we can measure to, and we use fluoroscopy when we're doing this to uh, estimate that the lead is right up against the myocardial tissue. And then we turn this helix, this sort of corkscrew that then extends and goes into the, into the myocardium. The lead on the, uh, in the lower panel here, this is a passive lead. So this lead has sort of like a grappling hook at the end and the grappling hook is trying to wedge its way into the trabeculations within the wall of the heart. And these, uh, these elements here hold the lead in place against um, the heart muscle. Uh, we predominantly use active fixation leads. There are rare instances where we might use a passive lead, but uh, in most instances, we're, we use active uh, fixation leads. Now, this active, this helix, the, the active fixation mechanism kind of holds the lead in place, but it, it doesn't provide a very secure anchor for the lead. So if we extend the helix uh, and then we give, you know, anything more than a very small tug on the lead, we can definitely dislodge the lead or pull it out from the muscle. The helix is really there to kind of hold the lead in place as the body is healing around the lead. So after somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, six weeks or so, the body has started to form connections with the lead to, to hold it uh, uh, where we position and risk of dislodgement as you get farther out from lead implantation really dramatically declines. And that's because the body forms connections with the leads, both at the, the, the lead tissue interface where we, we insert the lead into the heart, but there are various spots in the venous system at the uh, SVC right atrial junction where these leads tend to uh, attach to the tissue. It's sort of like if you've ever seen a tree that grows next to a chain link fence or it grows next to a power and how the tree can kind of incorporate the power line or the chain link fence uh, into, into the, the tree itself. Our body sort of grows around these leads as well. Again, the, the, the nice part about that is it holds the lead in place and the lead's very unlikely to dislodge after the first couple of months. The downside of is that it makes it very difficult to remove these leads. So if the patient has a fracture in the lead or if the lead becomes infected and we need to take it out, it can be difficult at times to do so. And we have to really separate the lead out from the, the heart muscle and from the uh, venous system, which in rare instances that can cause tearing of the heart muscle, tearing of the vasculature in the chest. And that can be life-threatening and sometimes patients need to have open heart surgery to get these leads taken out. So this is what a pacemaker pocket looks like. On the left is kind of a, a, a good example of a pacemaker pocket. So there's a well-heeled well incision. This patient is sort of a normal body habitus, and you see a small bulge here in the chest. That's where the, the pacemaker sits uh, under the skin. In patients with, with more subcutaneous fat, uh, you often will see no discernible bulge. And, and, you know, in some patients, it can be really hard to even feel where the device is. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, I took this picture just because it was such a um, dramatic example, but this is a patient who has cachexia and has really no subcutaneous fat. And you can, I mean, you can almost read the serial number on this device. You can see where the lead's coming out uh, here from the, from the header. I mean, you can, you can see the entire thing. So this is on the right is pretty uncommon. Um, most patients have, you know, a small bulge uh, that can't be seen. Now, there are, of course, complications with pacemaker 
uh, implantation. And one of the feared complications is infection. So if a pacemaker becomes infected, uh, we cannot clear that infection with antibiotics and the whole system has to be taken out. And um, that infection can occur within the pocket and that the bacteria can be introduced when we're putting the pacemaker in or maybe down the line when we're changing out the generator because the battery is worn out. But uh, when the when the pocket becomes infected, the skin often breaks down and device uh, sometimes come out of the pocket. And these are examples of that. So you see in this example on the left, the lead is actually sticking out of the pocket. Uh, again, here in the center, the coming out. And then on the right is an infected pocket. And you can see there's sort of erythematous there. Uh, it's warm to the touch. It's very tense and there's um, there's almost undoubtedly uh, pus buildup here. So this is a, a common spot that these pacemakers can get infected. And again, infections are really big deal because we have to take the whole pacing system out and treat the patient with antibiotics. This is another uh, example of infection, uh, but this is instead infection of the lead within the heart. So to orient you, this is a transesophageal echocardiogram. So we have a probe in the esophagus which gives us uh, really clear views of the heart. And this top chamber here is the right atrium. The bottom chamber here is the right ventricle. This in the middle is the tricuspid valve. And you can kind of make out here, there's a pacemaker lead, but there's this big floppy structure that's going into the ventricle and then prolapsing into the right atrium. So this big floppy structure here, uh, outlined in red, this is uh, infection. So this is, a, this is a ball of bacteria sitting on that pacemaker lead. And when this occurs, again, it's a big problem. The, the whole system has to be taken out and the patient has to be treated with antibiotics. This is another complication. This was one we recently saw. Uh, a colleague of mine had this patient. So this is a right-sided dual chamber pacemaker. So there was a lead that was placed in the right atrium and a lead that was placed in the right ventricle. And there is this syndrome called Twiddler syndrome where patients develop this kind of fascination with playing with their pacemaker. And if the pacemaker is not completely secured down, they can turn the pacemaker within the pocket and act sort of as a ratchet. And in this case, it pulled the leads back and the leads got pulled out of the right atrium and the right ventricle and were no longer functional. So this patient required uh, reoperation to place the, the atrial and ventricular leads um, back in the heart. So not, uh, not an ideal scenario. We like to avoid that. Uh, so why do we implant a pacemaker? So as we talked about, we'll, we'll implant a pacemaker when a patient has symptomatic bradycardia. It doesn't matter the site. So it doesn't matter if it's sinus uh, bradycardia or whether it's bradycardia due to the block. If they are symptomatic and we can't do anything um, pharmacologic, we, you know, can't take medications away to prevent that bradycardia, uh, then uh, we will implant a pacemaker to uh, help uh, or to minimize or to eliminate the symptoms related to the bradycardia. And then uh, in a, I think a smaller number of patients, we will in, uh, implant a pacemaker because they have conduction system disease that shows features that they are at high risk of progressing to complete heart block. So we're putting in a pacemaker so that they don't have an episode of severe or asystole in the future uh, that could potentially cause them to pass out and hurt themselves. Uh, or even die if, if the episode is long enough. So those are the two main reasons why we'll implant a pacemaker. So just like the implantable loop recorder, these pacemakers have batteries. The battery longevity varies, and it varies based upon the manufacturer, 
It varies based upon how much the patient is pacing. It varies based upon how much energy is required to capture the heart tissue every time the pacemaker is pacing. So six to 12 years is a reasonable estimate. Um, at the end of battery life, the generator is replaced. So as long as the leads are working fine, uh, we don't change the leads out. So the, the generator change procedure, a simpler procedure where we make an incision over the old device, we take the generator out, we unhook the leads, put a new generator in, tighten the leads in place, and then close up the um, So that's usually a 30-40 minute procedure and patient goes home the same day. Pacemaker implantation typically takes an hour and a half or so and patients spend one night in the hospital for monitoring. When patients go home, uh, we also monitor most of them remotely. They, we typically will see a patient in clinic once a year, uh, but they are given home monitors. And those home monitors are, we, we ask them to place them, you know, near where they're sleeping, uh, and they regularly, at, at regular intervals, will transmit data uh, for our review. And then, in terms of living with a pacemaker, you know, for the first six weeks, we ask patients to restrict arm movement on the side that we implant the device. The main arm movement we're trying to avoid is when they bring the elbow above the shoulder or behind the shoulder, the sort of wide ranging motions of the arm can tug on the leads and can potentially cause them to dislodge. So for the first six weeks or so, we restrict their arm movement, but after that, they normal activities. Patients uh, always ask about this. What happens when they go to the airport? So we do... Uh, for most patients with pacemakers, they'll undergo special screening at the airport. But to be honest, we in electrophysiology are not that worried about the patient setting off the metal detector. That may be what the patient's worried about. But actually, what we're concerned about is the uh, surveillance uh, or the screening report emits electromagnetic interference. And what we're concerned about is the pacemaker can sense that electromagnetic interference and mistake it for a heart rhythm. And if the pacemaker stops pacing in a patient who is dependent upon that pacing because it's seeing this electrical noise, the patient could then pass out. Or if they have a defibrillator, they could get shocked by their defibrillators. That's really what we're concerned about. Uh, and so, uh, you know, patients are given a card and there's a, you have probably noticed at the airport that there's uh, special screening protocols for those individuals. So the, the lead part of the pacing system is sort of the Achilles heel of the pacemaker. That lead is in the heart. The heart is beating about 100,000 times per day. So you can imagine over 10 years, that's like 360 million flexes of the lead. So uh, these leads over time can, can fracture, they can break down. Uh, and so there's been a lot of um, interest in developing leadless pacemakers to, uh, to avoid some of the complications related to the lead. And then leadless pacemakers also do not have a pocket. So there's no uh, you know, device sitting in the chest that can get infected and, and cause all these problems. So leadless pacemakers have been on the market for almost a decade now. Um, this is an example of one. This one's made by Medtronic called the Micra. It's a relatively small device uh, and it attaches to the inside of the heart using these, uh, these tines right here. So the uh, way we put this device in, we, we try to anchor the tines within this trabeculated septum uh, section of the right ventricle along the septum. And the device is put in through a catheter that we insert uh, through the groin, through the, through the femoral vein in the leg. And we bring the catheter up to the heart. And the catheter has the leadless pacemaker mounted in the tip. 
And then we inject some contrast to see, are we in a good spot? We want to see that we're on the septum and that there's lots of trabeculated tissue for the tines on the device to grab onto. This is actually an example of a device that's too low. It's on the inferior wall uh, of the right ventricle. But once we're happy where the device is, once it looks like it's in a good position, then we push the device out of the, the, uh, the catheter and these tines sort of pop out and grab onto tissue. And we, um, we still have control over the device at this point. You can't see it here, but there's a suture attached to the end of this device that we then control all the way outside the body and the leg. And we can tug on the device and we really want to see these tines moving to suggest that the tines have really grabbed onto some tissue and held into place. Once we see that the tines are moving and we confirm that the electrical parameters on the device look good, we cut the suture and pull everything out. And then this device here in the center stays. And so this is what a leadless pacemaker looks like. So there's no wires up to the chest. There's no pacemaker generator in the pocket. This device actually, uh, because of some uh, different engineering principles in the wide surface area of pacing, uh, can capture the heart muscle with lower energy. And so the battery longevity of these devices is... Um, roughly the same as a um, traditional pacemaker, as long as the pacing threshold is relatively low. The sheath that we use to place these devices is quite big. Um, it's 27 French. Uh, that's roughly about a centimeter in diameter. So it's a, it's a big sheath that we put through the vein. And we have some techniques like the suture technique here to close up the incision. Patients do have to lay flat for about six hours after we put these devices in so that the groin site can heal. Uh, and generally, they take it easy for about a week uh, in terms of exercise to let the access site heal. But after that, they can go back uh, to all their normal activities. And again, there's no pocket uh, to worry about. There's no um, arm restrictions because we're not about lead dislodgement. This is what a, the device looks like uh, in, a, in an autopsy. So the device is well situated within the trabeculated myocardium on the septum. So I also want to talk about cardiac resynchronization therapy. And in a subset of individuals that are paced from the right ventricle, uh, and especially when the right ventricular pacing burden is high, that can cause problems with the function, the mechanical function of the left ventricle. So the way I, I typically explain, explain this to patients is imagine you're, you're rowing a dinghy. The most efficient way to row that dinghy is with both oars at the same time. And that's how our hearts were designed to work, that the right ventricle and the left ventricle are contracting at the same time. That is how our heart operates in the most efficient manner. However, there are conditions like pacing, uh, chronic pacing in the right ventricle. There's also a condition called left bundle branch block where the two chambers of the heart are not activated at the same time. They are activated disynchronously. So that's sort of like rowing a dinghy with one oar and then the second oar. One oar, the left oar, and then the right oar. So the, the two oars are not operating at the same time. And when the, when the ventricles are being activated, uh, not necessarily in series, but uh, not in a uh, perfectly honest fashion, that electrical dyssynchrony, for reasons that we don't totally understand, can then lead to mechanical dyssynchrony. It actually can cause the left ventricular function to weaken. So when that happens in patients who are chronically paced in the right ventricle or in patients who don't have a pacemaker yet but have a left bundle branch block, we can consider cardiac resynchronization therapy. 
So to bring both orders together, we try to pace the right ventricle and the left ventricle at the same time. The issue though is pace, how do we pace the left ventricle? We can't put a lead in the left, or we can put a lead in the left ventricle, but we should not put a lead in the left ventricle. And the reason is blood from the left ventricle is ejected out through the aortic valve into the brain and all the other vital organs. And our body loves to form clots on material in the bloodstream. So if we put a lead in the left ventricle, the patient's gonna form clot on that lead and that clot's gonna embolize to the brain and cause a stroke. So the way we get around that is by utilizing a structure called the coronary sinus. The coronary sinus is basically the venous system of the heart. The coronary sinus connects to the right atrium. And so we're able to get access to the coronary sinus and we can thread a lead out the coronary sinus and out one of its branches to pace the left ventricle from the outside. So we're pacing the right ventricle from the inside, but if we can get a lead out the coronary sinus, we can pace the left ventricle from the epicardium, from the outside of the heart. This is what it looks like during a procedure. So we're injecting contrast uh, through this balloon tip catheter that we placed in the coronary sinus. And this shows us the coronary sinus and sort of its branches here. And when we see these branches, that's what we're gonna target uh, and, and put our lead out. And so, uh, you know, in this scenario, uh, this patient got a, a lead that was placed out uh, the, on the outside of the left ventricle here. They're then gonna be paced from the tip of this lead and from the tip of the lead at the apex of the right ventricle. So this is what a chest x-ray looks like in a patient with a cardiac resynchronization device. So there's a lead in the right atrium, there's a lead in the right ventricle, and then this lead is in the left ventricle. Now this right ventricular and left ventricular lead looks like they're right on top of each other when we're looking at a view straight on. But when we look at a side view here on the right, we see that the right ventricular and the left ventricular lead are sort of sandwiching the left ventricle. And again, by pacing through both of these leads at the same time, we're able to bring both of those ores on the dinghy together, and we're able to electrically activate the left ventricle in a synchronous fashion can uh, improve left ventricular function. By the way, on the left, you see that this patient has lots of cardiac uh, hardware. They have a bioprosthetic heart valve. They have a loop recorder implanted. And then this uh, device up here is actually a clip plate. Uh, by the surgeon to close off the left atrial appendage. And you can see by these wires here, this is an indication that the patient has had heart surgery, of course, to place the heart valve. Uh, and this is uh, where the sternum is closed. So the other uh, kind of major uh, development in pacing, and this is really um, gaining a lot of popularity over the last couple of years, and we're doing a lot of this at UCSF, is conduction system pacing. Conduction system pacing also is a way to help avoid or treat some of the uh, negative consequences that result from desynchronous pacing in the right ventricle. So in conduction system pacing, we're actually trying to uh, place one of the, the, the bottom chamber lead, the ventricular lead, actually plug it into the conduction system of the heart. So instead of just plugging it into the muscle and just being happy with getting it kind of anywhere in the right ventricle where it captures, we're actually being very selective about where we place these leads and we're trying to place them so that they capture the conduction system specifically. Now, when we first started doing this, we tried to place the leads in the His bundle. It's called His bundle pasting. It turns out uh, the anatomy is kind of hard to get to and it was hard to find the His bundle. 
Um, it was hard to deliver leads in this area. And then over time, we were noticing a lot of these leads were having problems. And so the, the current technique that we're using, and I think it's a dramatic improvement from his bundle pacing, is called left bundle uh, branch area pacing. So in this scenario, we're placing a lead across the tricuspid valve, and we're actually burrowing the lead deep into the septum here, such that the lead goes through the septum of the heart, through this muscle that separates the right and the left ventricle. And we're actually burrowing it all the way over to the left bundle. And so we place it really close to this you know, structure here shown in yellow, and we can test to see that we're capturing the left bundle. The target is much larger, um, and the lead stability seems to be uh, much better. So this is a, a nice way to provide very synchronous pacing uh, to the left ventricle and avoiding some of the problems of dyssynchronous pacing from the right ventricle. This is an intraprocedural example of what this looks like. So this uh, catheter right here is used to deliver this, this lead, and the lead in this case is a smaller caliber caliber lead um, that we burrowed into the septum of the heart. And we're actually injecting contrast through this uh, uh, catheter, through the sheath, and we're seeing the contrast hang up right here. So this is actually the inner wall of the right ventricle. And just to sort of diagram this out, this is the right ventricle, this is the septum, this is the left ventricle, and this is the conduction system. So we're, we're driving this lead through the septum, and we do it by really torquing the lead and uh, getting that helix to burrow through the myocardial muscle. Uh, and there's certain sort of electrical parameters we're looking at, but we can get that lead tucked into the uh, left bundle system to provide synchronous pacing of the left ventricle. So we're using a lot more conduction system pacing, uh, and there are a number of clinical trials going on right now evaluating uh, conduction system pacing versus cardiac therapy. Um, but the pilot data is very encouraging, suggesting that it may be as good or better than cardiac resynchronization therapy. So a very common question that I'm asked by patients is, does a pacemaker treat atrial fibrillation? And the short answer is no, but a pacemaker can be used as a final treatment strategy for refractory atrial fibrillation. So in this treatment strategy, a pacemaker is implanted. So we place the lead in the right ventricle of the heart. We don't need to place the lead in the in the top chambers because the patient is constantly fibrillating. Um, after we place the pacemaker lead, we typically wait a few weeks to make sure that the, everything's healing up okay, that the lead is functioning well, and then we'll bring the patient back. Uh, we'll bring a catheter up from the groin and we'll actually burn the AV node, the electrical connection between the top and the bottom chambers. We take the catheter out and there remains this permanent block. And so now the patient is fibrillating in the top chambers of the heart, but that fibrillation and the, the rapid irregular ventricular rates are no longer present. The patient is dependent upon the pacemaker, but they have a nice normal heart rhythm dictated by the pacemaker. So that is one treatment strategy. It's called a pace and ablate strategy uh, for atrial fibrillation. And it usually is used uh, in patients for whom we've exhausted all the other options like medications and catheter ablation. Now, uh, a quick word on implantable cardioverter defibrillators. And I show this picture here to emphasize a point. So when patients have uh, sudden death related to a cardiac cause, so when they have cardiac arrest, I think the common misconception is that the heart stops and the heart stops because there's no electrical activity of the heart. And the defibrillator is used somehow to restart the electrical activity. That's actually not 
uh, true in the majority of cases. So when patients have cardiac arrest or sudden death due to cardiac arrest, the most common cause is a very fast ventricular arrhythmia. That rhythm is called ventricular tachycardia, or if it's, if it's really fast and chaotic and disorganized, it's called, called ventricular fibrillation. So in this setting, the heart is electrically beating very, very fast, 200, 300 beats per minute, so fast electrically that mechanically the heart is not uh, beating at all. So the heart is just sort of sitting there quivering or, you know, we've seen these images of fibrillating hearts in open, open heart surgery, where it looks like just sort of like a bag of worms. It's not really contracting in any coordinated fashion. It's not moving blood at all. The brain and the other vital organs are not getting blood. And if that arrhythmia is not interrupted within a short period of time, within minutes, the patient will die. And so defibrillation is when we apply a large shock to the heart, that shock electrically resets all the myocardial cells and allows the normal rhythm to take over. So defibrillators are, are used to treat a quote-unquote stopped heart, but recognize that the heart actually electrically is not stopped. It's beating very, very fast. And what we're trying to do is to electrically reset all the cells to interrupt that fast chaotic heart rhythm, example of one at the bottom here. Uh, and to allow the normal heart rhythm to take over. So why do we get a defibrillator? There's two main reasons. There's secondary prevention. So secondary prevention refers to when a patient has had a cardiac arrest due to ventricular tachycardia or due to ventricular fibrillation. So they have had arrest and uh, amazingly they have survived that arrest. They've been resuscitated uh, and we put in a defibrillator because we do not want that to happen again to the patient. And the defibrillator is there to not to prevent the arrhythmia. So we often have to institute other therapies like medications or ablation to try to prevent the patient from going into the rhythm again. But if they do go back into them, the defibrillator there is to shock the heart very promptly to reset the electrical activity and to get the patient back into the normal rhythm. The more common reason that we implant these devices though is a primary prevention indication. So it has been shown that patients who have a weakened heart muscle, and we typically assess that using a parameter called the ejection fraction, which is the amount of blood that's ejected with every heartbeat. When that's less than 35%, and normal, by the way, is about 60 to 65%. So when the ejection fraction is less than 35%, patients are at increased risk of having these arrhythmias. And there have been uh, randomized trials showing that placement of a defibrillator in this setting improves mortality. So these are patients who have never had an arrhythmia, but they are at much uh, increased risk compared to the general population. And so we'll place a defibrillator uh, in that scenario. So this is what a defibrillator looks like. It looks a lot like a pacemaker. Uh, and it all, basically everything is um, the, the sort of general uh, system setup is the same. So there's a lead uh, or multiple leads that go down into the heart. But the defibrillator lead, in contrast to the pacemaker lead, has this coil at the end of it. And this, this is a high-voltage coil. And it's through this vector between this high-voltage coil and the actual generator that the shock is delivered. Now, patients often ask when we're putting in a defibrillator, well, are you putting in a pacemaker as well? Yes, we are. So all defibrillators uh, have pacemaker function, and that's for a variety of reasons, including the fact that Many of these patients have coexistent um, conduction system abnormalities. And then after an ICD shock, 
some patients will become bradycardic or asystolic. And so the pacemaker is there or the defibrillator is there to provide backup pacing. And then there are features uh, where the defibrillator can try to pace a patient out of a very rapid um, ventricular rhythm. And sometimes that works. That's called anti-tachycardia pacing. So all defibrillators are pacemakers as well, but no pacemakers are defibrillators. So the defibrillator is there. That's a system. It has to have a specific lead in the right ventricle. It has to have a specific generator uh, that can deliver this very high voltage shock uh, to the heart to electrically reset it in the event that it detects uh, a dangerous uh, fast heart rhythm. And this is sort of what uh, this looks like from an electrical standpoint. So this tracing in the top channel here, this is what's happening in the atrium. Uh, in this middle channel here, this is what's happening in the ventricle. So this patient is in this very rapid, you know, over um, 300 beat per minute, very chaotic rhythm. Uh, this rhythm would, would certainly cause death if it continued to occur, but the pacemaker appropriately senses this rhythm. And then down here, um, the, uh, the pacemaker delivers a shock. This shock is delivered at 36 joules. That's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 900 volts. And that electrically resets the heart and allows the patient uh, to um, go back into uh, a normal rhythm. In this case, it's an atrially paced uh, ventricularly paced rhythm. So this is a, is a nice example of a pacemaker uh, shocking a patient out of a life-threatening ventricular arrhythmia. So this is why we put these devices in. Now, uh, defibrillator leads have all the problems of pacemaker leads. In fact, these defibrillator leads are much more complex in their engineering and their design. And so they're actually more prone to abnormalities there to, to break down than pacemaker leads. And so uh, for all the downsides of uh, a traditional transvenous pacemaker, the subcutaneous ICD was developed. So this has been on the market, I think, say roughly 10 years or so from, it, from its initial version. So this is the pace, the defibrillator generator is placed in the armpit and the lead is actually tunneled external to the rib cage and is, is placed next to the sternum. So all of this exists outside of the chest and uh, the can um, sits in the axilla and it's sensing between these various vectors, but the, uh, the lead with the high voltage coil is sitting right in the sternum and the heart is sort of sandwiched. In. Now, because this defibrillator is sitting outside the chest, uh, it has to deliver more energy to effectively de defibrillate the heart. So the subcutaneous ICD tends to be larger than traditional ICDs. So these are two traditional single chamber ICDs on the left. This is the subcutaneous ICD. These devices on the left shock usually between 36 and 40 joules. Uh, this over here can shock at 80 joules. So it, it provides uh, almost twice the amount of energy uh, to the heart muscle to defibrillate it. This is what a chest x-ray looks like in a patient with a subcutaneous ICD. Again, nothing is in the vasculature, nothing is in the chest. Um, this is the can and this is the lead and the shock vector is between the can and the lead. This is a lateral view and you see that the heart, which is this structure right here outlined in by my arrow, the heart is nicely sandwiched between the generator uh, and the lead. Now, the subcutaneous ICD does not have much in the way of pacing capabilities. It can, there's some rudimentary pacing that it has. Um, but uh, in the future, the hope is that the subcutaneous ICD will be uh, uh, able to interact with 
um, leadless, the, uh, leadless pacemaker. And this may be a way to minimize wires uh, inside a patient's heart and again, to avoid some of the problems with transvenous devices. But this is a patient who's had a subcutaneous ICD implantation. You see the bulge here in the axilla. It's placed through an incision here under the left breast. And then we typically avoid this top incision. So there's just a second incision here, kind of right in the middle of the chest. And the lead is sort of sitting in this orientation and is connected to the generator over here. There are some downsides or drawbacks to the subcutaneous ICD. It's much more likely to pick up noise. And that noise can be from mild potentials from the pectoralis muscle. Uh, this is a patient of mine. Uh, you see they're in a very normal heart rhythm, but there's all this kind of noise in the background. The noise is because the lead, um, the, the, the device was sensing uh, the pectoralis muscle and the patient unfortunately got an inappropriate shock due to that. Now, thankfully, we were able to reprogram the device to sense in a different vector that eliminated these uh, noisy signals. But this is unfortunately uh, an inappropriate shock is probably a little bit higher with a subcutaneous ICD. All right, so that's a, the defibrillator, and I want to spend the last couple of minutes talking about um, left atrial appendage occlusion. So this left atrial appendage occlusion is a therapy that can be offered to patients who have atrial fibrillation who are at risk of having a stroke. And left atrial appendage occlusion does nothing to impact atrial fibrillation. Left atrial appendage occlusion is only there to minimize the risk of stroke in the setting of atrial fibrillation. So it's not going to impact the patient's palpitations. It's not going to impact their fast heart rates. It is solely used as a stroke prevention therapy. So as we heard from Dr. Marcus's lecture, when patients who have fibrillation, we typically treat them with anticoagulation. The good news is anticoagulation works, and it works really well. This was a clinical trial that compared anticoagulation with a drug called apixaban to aspirin. The trial had to be stopped at one year because apixaban was so much more effective than aspirin in the prevention of stroke. Patients always ask, well, I have atrial fibrillation. Can I take aspirin? And the answer should be, if they have a reasonable stroke risk profile, the answer should be no. You should be on an anticoagulant. And this, this is why. Apixaban provides um, much better, uh, apixaban and the other anticoagulants provide much better protection against stroke compared to aspirin. And certainly compared to nothing. But the problem is apixaban only works if it's prescribed and, it's in, and it only works if it's taken by the patient. This is data uh, that Dr. Marcus uh, and uh, one of my colleagues, John Sue, published. Uh, this is looking at uh, proportion of patients within cardiology practices who have atrial fibrillation and who are prescribed an oral anticoagulant. And if you look, the median practice treatment prevalence with anticoagulation was 52%. So in any given cardiology practice, if you look at their atrial fibrillation patients, roughly only half of those patients are taking an oral anticoagulant. And it's unlikely because cardiologists don't know that atrial fibrillation increases stroke risk. There's a lot of barriers to this. Some patients don't want to take an anticoagulant. Some patients are really poor candidates for anticoagulation. Why might they be a poor candidate? Well, Maybe the patient is falling very frequently. Maybe they have, before atrial fibrillation was diagnosed, maybe they had a spontaneous hemorrhage or had uh, some other process where they had some internal bleeding. And so their providers may appropriately be very reluctant to prescribe an anticoagulant in that setting. 
Maybe they engage in a high-risk hobby or have a high-risk profession um, where they're worried about For all these reasons, patients may not want to take anticoagulation. Now, there's a structure that comes off the left atrium called the left atrial appendage. It is a pouch. It's seen here. Uh, and it's within this pouch, uh, within the left atrial appendage, that the majority of clots that form in the setting of atrial fibrillation, uh, it's, this is where the majority of these clots come from. And if this clot, as you can see, uh, uh, three centimeter by one centimeter clot, if this leaves the heart and goes to the brain, that's what causes an atrial fibrillation associated stroke. And so there has long been enthusiasm for techniques that can uh, plug off the left atrial appendage and prevent clots from forming in the left atrial appendage and prevent clots from embolizing to the brain and causing a stroke. So there are currently two treatment options or two uh, percutaneous left atrial appendage uh, occlusion options. That's the Boston Scientific Watchman Flex and the Abbott Amplaster Amulet. So these are basically pulls that are put in the left atrial appendage to prevent stroke in the setting of atrial fibrillation. These plugs are put in uh, through the vein. So we go in through the, the femoral vein and the groin. Uh, we bring catheter up to the heart and we puncture between the right atrium and the left atrium. And then once we're in the left atrium, that's when we deliver these devices to the left atrial appendage. And this is an example. This is an older generation Watchman device. And this is the design of the Amplatzer amulet device. But both technologies are there to occlude the left atrial appendage. Once we implant these devices, we don't sort of put them in uh, and tell the patient, you know, have a great life. Uh, you never have to worry about atrial fibrillation associated stroke. Once these devices are put in, the fabric on the outer side of the device is exposed, exposed to the blood pool. And as we talked about, our blood loves to form clot on this foreign material. And so for the first six months or so after the device is put in, we have to protect the patient from forming clot on the face of these devices, on the fabric coating of these devices. Now, after six months or after some period of time, probably takes less amount of time, but we play it safe and treat patients for six months, the body forms a thin over the face of the device. So this is in the canine model at three days and at 45 days. You can see that there's a sort of shiny layer of cells that grows over the face of this device. And these are in uh, human autopsies at 200 days and about 900 days, almost three years after implantation of these devices. So the body eventually forms a sort of shiny, slick endothelial over the face of the device. But until that happens, we have to treat the patient with antiplatelets and or anticoagulant medications to prevent clot on the face of the device. So uh, it is not sort of a magic bullet, but it is a very effective treatment to get patients off long-term anticoagulation for stroke prevention. So this is just a, a, a couple of images from the implant procedure. This is the actual uh, the sheath that's placed uh, in the heart in the left atrial appendage. We inject some contrast to sort of uh, understand uh, where we are. We also use uh, simultaneous transesophageal echocardiography, and that's what this device is here on the left. Once we get the sheath in the left atrial appendage, um, we actually unsheath the Watchman device, and it sort of springs open uh, in the appendage. As we're doing that, we inject some contrast to see where we are. And then as we further pull back the sheath, the Watchman device sort of fully flowers open 
and hopefully sits right where we want it in the left atrial appendage. We do this with ultrasound guidance, and this is what the Watchman device with that umbrella sort of looking device looks like when it's in the left atrial appendage. This is sort of where the, um, the left atrial appendage would have uh, been, and this device is now occluding it. This is uh, another example. So this is the Watchman device, and this is where the left atrial appendage um, would have been. Once we implant the device, we do a lot of testing. We tug on it. We make measurements to make sure it's well compressed. We uh, have ways of looking with ultrasound to make sure that there's no leaks around the device. Once everything looks good, we, um, we unscrew the wire and uh, that deploys the device. The device stays in place. We pull the sheath and everything out from the groin uh, and um, the patient is then uh, has their left atrial appendage that is occluded with this device. And again, over the ensuing weeks to months, the body will form a, a thin layer of cells over the face of the device and completely close off the appendage. While we're waiting for that to happen, and again, we don't have a perfect uh, understanding of how long that takes in an individual patient, but if we treat them for at least six months, uh, we what treatment regimen a patient should receive, I think, is uh, still incompletely understood, um, but that regimen can include things like a blood thinner, like uh, a Pixaban or uh, Rivaroxaban plus aspirin uh, for the first 45 days, and then we use dual antiplatelet therapy to bridge the patient out to six months. Um, there was this new indication uh, released by the FDA. So we can treat patients with just dual antiplatelet therapy. So that's aspirin and the second antiplatelet, usually clopidogrel, uh, and avoid anticoagulation over those first six months. And there's been a couple other studies looking at things like half dose, um, which may in, uh, decrease the bleeding risk and still adequately protect the patient from clots forming on the device. We don't know the optimal uh, post-implantation regimen. Lots of different regimens are used, but bottom line is the patient has to receive something to protect them from stroke in the first six months. After six months, we can go to maybe a baby aspirin or in certain high-risk patients, we'll stop any anticoagulation or any antiplatelet uh, altogether. So who's eligible for a Watchman device? Uh, we see a lot of patients in clinic that ask about this. They've heard about this. Um, the Centers for Medicare Services, uh, whenever there's a new technology, will uh, issue criteria for which they will pay for that in Medicare patients. And then most insurance companies uh, adopt similar recommendations or rules. So to get a Watchman device in 2022, patients have to have a CHADS VAST score. Really. So if you recall, CHADS VAST score is how we estimate yearly stroke risk in the setting of atrial fibrillation. So these are patients that have at least a moderate risk of stroke. Uh, and then in the, in the wording of uh, Medicare, a patient has to have a suitability for short-term anticoagulation. Again, that's to protect them from clot on the face of the device, but they have to be deemed unable to take long-term oral anticoagulation following the inclusion of shared decision-making. So interestingly, to implant this device in a patient, uh, I have to have a shared decision-making patient uh, conversation with the patient, but then there are also, because CMS doesn't uh, trust us, uh, there also needs to be a conversation between a non-implanting physician and the patient uh, to also, who also has to agree that it's very reasonable uh, to pursue a Watchman device. So there's certain criteria that um, have to be fulfilled for us to implant these devices. Uh, this is uh, largely avoided presenting uh, data for these various uh, therapies, but 
I just want five-year um, Watchman randomized trial data. So in these randomized trials, patients were randomized, patients with atrial fibrillation were randomized to either a Watchman device or anticoagulation. In this setting, uh, the anticoagulation was a, a older medication that we don't routinely use anymore for atrial fibrillation called warfarin. And so patients either got the Watchman device or they were treated with warfarin, but the patient didn't get to decide, the doctor didn't get to decide, it was random. Uh, and when you look at five-year data, that risk of hemorrhagic stroke was reduced in patients getting the Watchman device, which is understandable because they were not getting anticoagulation long-term, only short-term six-month period. Um, the risk of ischemic stroke was maybe a little bit higher in patients who got the Watchman, a little bit lower in the, in the warfarin group. But when you look at sort of all cause death in these patients, so when you look at as the patients were randomized, who lives longer, there was a slight mortality benefit for the Watchman device over warfarin, and um, was, was reduced in this cohort as well, again, because these Watchman patients are not um, receiving long-term anticoagulation. So the Watchman device or left atrial appendage occlusion in general is a reasonable thing to consider in patients who have atrial fibrillation, who are at elevated risk of stroke, and who are at uh, thought to be felt to be poor long-term anticoagulation candidates because of history of bleeding, high-risk occupation, um, et cetera. And that's all a discussion that has to be had between the patient uh, and their physician. So by way of review, we talked about implantable loop recorders. These are devices that allow us to monitor a patient's rhythm over a long term, especially for individuals who are having rare arrhythmia episodes that we want to uh, hopefully catch. We talked about pacemaker implantations. There's lots of different pace, pacing options now, including traditional transvenous pacemakers, leadless pacemakers, cardiac resynchronization, um, conduction system pacemakers, but all these pacemakers are implanted for patients who have uh, slow heart rates or at high risk of having a slow heart rate. Conversely, patients may need an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, and that is to treat fast heart rhythms, dangerously lethal heart rhythms from the bottom of the heart, ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. Um, and those defibrillators can also provide many of the functions uh, of a pacemaker. And then finally, we talked about left atrial appendage occlusion. So these are devices that can be implanted in patients with atrial fibrillation at high risk of stroke, but are poor candidates for long-term anticoagulation because of bleeding issues. And these devices uh, have been compared to anticoagulation and are felt to be as effective long-term uh, for stroke prevention as anticoagulation in patients who uh, are uh, really not very good candidates to take the therapy long-term. So with that, I'll open things up to questions and uh, thanks for listening. Great. Thanks, uh, Tommy, for uh, covering a lot of material and um, uh, providing a very clear presentation. So uh, a few questions. Um, so one, uh, starting from the beginning here, is regarding the loop recorder and whether use of uh, cloud-based uh, systems might help prolong the recording time possible or how long those devices last. Yeah, so all these devices... Um come with a monitor uh, or a, a bedside sort of console. And that uh, device interacts with the loop recorder 
and sort of takes the data from it and allows the data to be deleted off the loop recorder. And then the data, once the, um, the bedside console is then uploaded to a server uh, for us to review. So um, yeah, that data is uh, fairly routinely wiped from the actual device itself and uploaded to a server. Great. A uh, couple of questions about lead fractures, um, specifically uh, a question asking about what might increase the risk? Does exercise uh, increase the risk? Um, and the other is, what do we do uh, when there's a lead fracture? Do we repl replace the lead? Do we have to remove the old lead? Do we fix the, the current lead? Yeah, all, all good questions. So um, why does the lead fracture? Um, and it's a complicated question. So there's lots of different factors. There's probably some factors related to the implant Technique. So uh, when these devices were first put in, the leads would put in uh, right where the vein went under the clavicle. And it was recognized that when the lead interacts with the clavicle over time, that can cause breakdown of the lead. And so we now uh, puncture the vessel a little bit more lateral to the clavicle. There's certainly uh, some patients that engage in repetitive arm movements that stress the lead over time. Um, Fractures are more common in younger patients who are more physically active than perhaps, you know, the 95-year-old that we may put a pacemaker in. So there are some uh, patient-related factors. Uh, and then, unfortunately, there are uh, problems with leads that emerge over time. These are very highly engineered devices. Uh, again, they're flexing, you know, hundreds of millions of times over their lifetime. Uh, and uh, there can be design uh, issues or engineering issues. Um, a lot of the leads that we're implanting are uh, actually very pretty old technology, decades and decades old. And part of the reason why we do that is because we know uh, that technology works and that technology remains durable. Um, but there have, as, as many people listening have probably um, heard, there are from time to time recalls on these leads. And, and that, because these leads, some, some of the newer designs have been shown uh, to fail more often. Now, when the lead fractures, that's uh, also uh, a, a, an issue that we have to think about and think about carefully. So the options are to take out the old lead and put a new one in, but that of course exposes the patients to the risk of extraction, which you know, um, in general, those risks are relatively low, uh, but uh, some of the complications can be catastrophic when they occur. The other option is to just cap the lead, leave it there, don't take it out and just put a new lead right next to it. That sometimes uh, can be done, but if the vein has closed off, as it sometimes does when there's previous leads placed, um, sometimes we can't get access and we have to take the old lead out to put a new lead in. And then every time we put a new lead into the heart, and especially into the ventricle, we have to cross the tricuspid valve. And the more leads you have crossing the tricuspid valve, the more, the greater the likelihood that you're going to introduce um, uh, or have impingement of the tricuspid valve, which can lead to tricuspid regurgitation. Um, the more leads you have with the superior vena cava, the higher the risk of occluding the superior vena cava. So uh, there are times when we may extract the lead. There are times when we may say it's we should just add an additional lead and cap the old lead. Uh, but those are really the, the two options. Uh, when a lead's fractured, we don't really have any tools that can repair the lead within the body. 
And I, I missed a related question, which is, what are the manifestations of a fractured lead? How do you know and why does it matter? Yeah, so part of the reason why we have remote monitoring and we, we keep a close eye on these devices every few months is to uh, try to pick up on abnormalities before they clinically become a problem. So we can sometimes detect lead abnormalities by changes in impedance of the lead. Uh, and sometimes we can note very high frequency non-physiologic noise on the lead that suggests that there's a problem uh, with the lead itself. So uh, remote monitoring is a very important um, way that we can pick up on these lead fractures. And then lead fractures, uh, the clinical consequences of them uh, can be varied. So if the lead fractures and it's causing very high frequency uh, signal that's detected by the device, the device may inhibit pacing, in which case a patient who has a pacemaker may pass out or even conceivably could die if there's the, the pacing is withheld for a long enough period of time. And then in patients with defibrillators, the defibrillator can get faked out and thinking that the patient is in ventricular fibrillation it, and it can deliver what's called an inappropriate shock. So the patient's wide awake, they're in a completely normal rhythm, uh, but the device, uh, because of the fractured lead, thinks that the patient is in a very tachycardic rhythm and can give uh, these very high energy shocks, which unfortunately um, are, are very painful for, for patients. And for some individuals, this can be very traumatic and cause things like PTSD, et cetera. So uh, there can be very serious consequences of lead fracture. That's why we want to identify that early and kind of jump on it before it becomes a clinical problem. Great. Uh, there's a question about the battery life of a leadless pacemaker. It, it might be useful just to review the, the battery lives of the various devices you, you talked about tonight. Yeah, so the implantable loop recorder, battery life of about two to three years. The Watchman device, of course, there's uh, there's no battery. So uh, that that device is there for life. Um, and then the uh, pacemaker and defibrillator batteries. So it really varies, again, probably in the 10 to 12, or I would say, let's say six to 12 year range is what I typically tell patients. And uh, how long the battery lasts is dependent upon several factors, including um, the, the battery itself. So some manufacturers have batteries appear to last longer than other manufacturers. Some devices have, there, there are sort of big battery devices that we can implant that have a longer estimated battery longevity. And then how much the device is pacing the patient will impact how long the battery lasts, what type of, or what, um, amplitude is required to capture the heart muscle to pace the patient, uh, will impact the battery, uh, life. And then for a defibrillator, uh, ICD shocks also drain the battery. An ICD shock in general shortens the longevity of a battery by about a month. Um, so uh, there's a lot of different factors, but in general, um, six to 12 years. The leadless pacemaker, it's a, it's a little hard. You know, these devices are newer, and so we don't have as much longitudinal data, although all these devices when we're checking them with remote monitoring or in person, they all give an estimate of battery longevity. And most of these devices are estimating that they're going to last somewhere in the eight to 12 year range. Again, some of them pacing at higher output, especially the leadless devices. Um, they don't, because they're smaller, they don't tolerate that as well, if you will. And so those batteries may, may last somewhere in the, you know, three, four or five year range. It's really high output. And then just to sort of round out that conversation, leadless uh, devices, 
at least the Medtronic device uh, cannot be retrieved. Uh, there's a newer device made by another manufacturer, Abbott, that um, it, it can be retrieved and, and taken out and a new one put in. But for the, for the Micra device, uh, we leave that in place and put a new one next to it in the heart. Great. All right. So that's a nice place to end. Uh, I'd like to, again, thank Dr. Doolin for uh, a very informative and interesting talk. And uh, thank you to uh, everyone in the audience for your participation and, and engagement. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.